a year into a pandemic, I feel like we all need parenting certificates mailed to us because getting through right now is, is really hard. That was Dr. Rosalind Catchpole, a registered psychologist and head of the Mood and Anxiety Disorders Clinic at BC Children's Hospital, and a guest on this podcast. Welcome to Where You Are. I'm Michelle Horn. And I'm Bryn Asquith. For our last episode of the season, Michelle and I got to talking and realized it would be fantastic to hear from our listeners about questions that you have around child and youth mental health. And boy, did we get a number of questions. We sure did. Thank you to everyone who took the time to send in your questions. We received such a range of topics, everything from anxiety and stress, from self-harm to managing family relationships, and how to have conversations just about really tough topics. So we thought we would take these questions to some of our leading mental health experts at BC Children's Hospital, Dr. Rosalind Catchpole and Dr. Ashley Miller. Dr. Catchpole is a registered psychologist and head of the Mood and Anxiety Disorders Clinic at BC Children's Hospital. She's actively involved in treatment, teaching, and research on anxiety disorders, and has a particular interest in parent-led treatment approaches, including those for school refusal. Dr. Miller is a child psychiatrist and family therapist at BC Children's Hospital. As part of her work, Dr. Miller runs support groups for teens with depression and caregiver groups for families. It's so great to have you both here. Thank you so much. It's our pleasure. Here's a question that comes from a parent wanting to understand how to talk to their younger child about stress and other feelings. My daughter is five years old. Sometimes it's difficult for her to express what is the source of her stress or the feelings she has. Any suggestions to excavate in a soft way? I want to get at her stress, but also don't want to put ideas in her head. I think the the first thing to know is that it's normal for kids, uh, even adults, and especially young kids, not to know how they're feeling. And even if they do have an inkling of how they're feeling, not to express it right away in words. It's actually a developmental process that we learn how to understand our feelings and then an even harder thing to put that into words. Sometimes when we try too hard, whether it's with a five-year-old or a 15-year-old or even a 45-year-old, to get them to say what they're feeling, they can turtle and shut down and give us even less information. So I always think about wanting to be with the person in a supportive way. And with a younger child, that might be playing together, watching them play, coloring together, doing art. With an older child, it might be playing sports or still using art. With a teenager, it may be going for a walk or a drive. And that presence and supportive stance that you bring to your encounter is going to put them in a position to open up. And art and play are children's language. So if you let a child be with toys, they will usually play out what they're thinking and feeling. And our job as parents and caregivers is actually to get out of the way and just to see what unfolds. We can also use educated guesses and some feelings words to try to give them the vocabulary to express. So like, oh, looks like you're really pounding on that toy. I'm wondering if you're frustrated that it's not working the way you want it to. You know, so we can give the language to help them learn to put it into words. But if they don't, that's okay too. We'll, we'll get the picture. That's such a great reminder that art and play are children's language. That's such a great takeaway. 
Dr. Catchpole, anything you wanted to add? I really agree with what Dr. Miller said in all ways. The one little thing I would add is just the when not to excavate. And so there's one particular situation, I think, where it can actually be unhelpful to try to get at how the child's feeling. And that's in those situations where they're about to do something hard and they're freaking out a little or they're getting nervous. So for a younger child, this might be, you know, the daycare drop off or for a teen, it might be walking into a, to give a presentation at school or something like that. And when our nervous systems are activated, when we're in a bit of that sort of fight, flight, freeze response, it's not the time to dive deeply into those emotions. A little bit of distraction, keeping things moving for younger kids and for older kids, but, you know, particularly with young ones, we really praise the bravery, right? Wow, great job getting your boots on, great job getting into the car. Oh, look, there's so-and-so over on the slide. So sometimes there's that impulse to really want to know, well, why are they having a hard time with that drop-off or what's going on? But in those moments when they're already activated, it tends not to be so helpful to do the deep dive. So we have a question from a parent who's asking, I've heard that counseling can be helpful when supporting a child with mental health challenges. What age is too early to start counseling with younger kids? And how do you know if a counselor is the right fit for your child? I feel like it's really good to have a developmental lens on this question. So I feel like from movies and sort of popular culture, we have this idea that therapy is someone in a room talking to a professional or, or playing or things like that. But really what we've learned more recently is that there is so much we can do to empower caregivers to support their kids, starting when they're really, really young. And so even for preschool aged kids who are struggling, we can work with parents in order to almost teach the parent to do some of the therapeutic skills that we might otherwise do. Um, things like how to support a child you know, with anxiety or challenges with mood um, or how to help behavioral outbursts. And so when you're looking for a therapist, I would really be looking for someone that takes that kind of family view, that it's not one or the other, and it's not just parent support or just working with the child, but really that's going to take a holistic view of the family to see which area might benefit the most from support. And even when I work with 10 or 12-year-old kids, sometimes the majority of what I do is working with parents, not because parents are to blame, by the way, just the opposite, because as parents and caregivers, you just have so much influence. You're there at 10 at night. It's, it's not the, the psychologist or the psychiatrist or the therapist. Um, and there are really good evidence-based strategies that work when, when supporting parents. So that's a very long answer and, and a pitch for really thinking about this, uh, you know, in, in a family lens rather than just what age um, may the child start. And I suppose because I should answer the question a little bit more directly as well, typically for things like anxiety and stress, we'd probably be looking at kids being maybe around seven or eight years old before they're going to benefit too, too much. And again, this is, a, this is a generality, but too, too much from individual work. Below that, we tend to get more bang for our buck in working with parents. And even as kids approach adolescence, we still want to include family and caregivers in the work that we're doing. 
And just as a quick follow-up to that, I know we get a lot of questions at the Kelty Center from parents whose children are seeing a counselor or a therapist and they're feeling like it's just not quite the right fit or the kid isn't really jiving with the therapist and they're not sure whether to switch to another one or talk to the therapist. So it kind of gets to that second part of the question about like, how do I know if it's the right fit for my family and child? Um, and what do I do if I'm feeling like it's not? Generally speaking, you kind of want to know what's going on in the therapy room with a younger child. And so I think the first step is really to have a chat with that therapist and find out kind of what's been going on, what are the goals, how are they working on things, and make sure that approach seems to jive with your own family values and goals. Um, the other thing is, we want to listen to our kids. So if it really seems like it's not, you know, after a few times, we're, we're all nervous in new situations. And so I always recommend, you know, giving it a few tries with a new person to make sure it's not just that sort of initial apprehension or kind of getting to know each other. Um, but if, if your child really doesn't seem to be jiving in that situation, it may be that it's not the right fit. Or it may be that they're not in a place where individual therapy is where it's at. And it may be, you know, good to switch to a little bit more of a parent-led approach. Dr. Miller, anything you wanted to add? I might just add that it's important not to give up just because there might have been one negative experience. Uh, if it's a teen, uh, then I usually encourage the teen to try to talk to their therapist first about what isn't working for them because often things can improve in that relationship. But if it's really not a fit, then um, we know that one of the best predictors of success of psychotherapy is the patient-therapist relationship. So it's definitely worth uh, taking that to heart and not giving up and trying again. And the Kelty Center is a great place to turn to ask around recommendations for how to find the psychotherapist. Okay, so our next question is actually from a parent in Haida Gwaii, and they actually had two questions. So the first question they had was, supporting versus enabling, what does the line between the two look like? Thinking a little bit about a framework, so taking a step back and looking at where is your child or youth right now? Where, what are they able to do? What are the parts of life that are feeling really hard? Let's say they're having a hard time getting to school. And let's say they actually haven't been in a couple of weeks because things have been really hard. What is support is breaking that down into more manageable steps so that they're able to feel successful. It might be a very appropriate supportive role to play to say, hey, let's just walk around the school on the weekend. Let's get a little more used to this. Or let me drive you to school, even though you usually walk. And let's just pop into the resource room for 15 minutes. So when I think about support, I think about providing just enough scaffolding, just enough support so that they can continue on with those important jobs of childhood and adolescence, of learning, of being with friends, of independence. When I think about enabling and again, I feel like even that term sounds sort of judgmental. And I, I think, you know, parents and caregivers are just trying their best to navigate really muddy situations sometimes. So self-compassion first. Um, but when I think about enabling, I, I almost think more about the emotional state of the parent, which is sometimes if you're feeling like, I don't know what the roadmap is here. I don't know how to get from A to B. We can end up doing things that feel a bit like a, a Hail Mary or sort of a stab in the dark. And in those situations, then sometimes we might be doing things that aren't 
supporting their independence in a more structured way. So if it does feel like as a caregiver or parent, you're in that situation where you're feeling like, gosh, maybe I'm really enabling, let's say some of their avoidance or things like that, it really is the time to reach out and talk with a friend or or, or talk with a, a mental health professional to, to, to see a little more. What do we think the roadmap looks like? You're listening to Where You Are. Thanks to all of our listeners who sent in questions for today's episode. We received a few questions that focus on ADHD in children and youth. While we won't be able to get to these questions about ADHD during today's episode, we recently held a webinar series on ADHD in children and youth that explored some of these exact questions. You can find the webinar series at keltymentalhealth.ca slash ADHD webinar series. We hope you check it out. So the same parent from Haida Gwaii had uh, a second question, and I think it's something that is um, a, a lot of parents uh, struggle with and are trying to support their children with um, around phone use and screen use. So their question was, how do I limit late night phone use when it is used as a coping mechanism? Especially during the pandemic, I think almost all parents and caregivers have had to relax how much screen time they've allowed their kids because it also has the benefit of connecting kids to their friends. And sometimes that's been the only way to connect. So first of all, just to say that that's normal, that that's been happening. This question about it's a coping mechanism, I think it's important to dissect out what does that really mean? What are the elements of coping? Is it turning to a friend because that friend is the person who helps talk them down when they're really distressed? Is it distracting themselves by watching a show or a video? And are they really coping better because of it in the grand scheme? But if they're up until two, three, four in the morning and then getting into this cycle of being sleep deprived and their mood is even more all over the place, is that really coping or is that a temporary coping, but really it's not helping them cope overall? So I think it's important as a parent or a caregiver to know, first of all, that you do have control. You can set limits. The fine points, like what time does it go off? What are they allowed to do? The older the child is, the more negotiation and discussion there can be. And what I really like with older kids and teens is involving them in the conversation, is getting them to reflect on how is their screen use helping them? How is it affecting their mood in positive and negative ways? What are the pros and cons? Because we want to teach them to be adults who can make decisions about their screen use. That's the goal. And recognizing that it's not just the kids. Families, parents, caregivers are also struggling to keep phones out of our own rooms. And of course, the rules don't have to be the same for for teens and for parents. But I'll tell you, it goes over a lot better when it's a whole family decision to respect screen limits and to care for our own sleep uh, health at night. I totally agree. I actually set a limit on my phone yesterday because my eyes were getting really sore because I'm on Zoom all day <laughs> in therapy. And then I was using my phone too much. And I, I mentioned this to my daughter who was like quite thrilled, quite thrilled that mom had a, a screen time limit. So there there is something to be said for being a bit authentic and acknowledging our own weaknesses and humanity as well. 
And I'll add to that in terms of resources. Um, we have a new section on the Kelty website that focuses on healthy technology use, as well as a podcast called Keeping Tech in Check um, that we did with Dr. Shimmy Kang, who's a researcher in this area as well. And you can find those both at keltymentalhealth.ca slash tech in check. And I'll add that um, link to our show notes for today's episode too. So I feel like we could do about three more podcasts just on technology and screens. I know. <laughs> In the interest of time, then we'll move on to the next question. Um, So we had a question from a parent or a caregiver in New Westminster. Uh, They shared, My 12-year-old daughter just recently started picking at the skin on her hand and arm during a very stressful time. She has little scabs in one area of the underside of her arm and on the back of her hand. It's the first time she has done it to this extent. Do we wait to see if it occurs again or get support now before it becomes a serious habit or gets worse? Although this is a specific question, I think it speaks to the broader topic as parents of when do we know when something needs addressing or needs help? And when is it just part of normal development or it's okay? So as a starting point, I would say check in with some friends or your family doctor if you're feeling worried about it to just see what what seems normal and what doesn't seem normal. To, To reassure you a bit, though, I would say that when we're stressed, we all have coping mechanisms that are sometimes very healthy, sometimes not the healthiest, but kind of okay, and occasionally really unhealthy. Skin picking falls under um, uh, the, the sort of fancy category would be called a body-focused repetitive behavior. And it's the same kind of thing as biting our nails when we're stressed or cracking our knuckles or pulling out hair or things like that. And so it's, you know, to think of it simply, it's sort of a a way of the body to get rid of a bit of excess energy or stress. If it's happened in a limited way in the context of a particularly stressful episode and things are healing up, it's not something I would be too, too worried about. It's also different than self-harm. So self-harm would be injuring oneself on purpose, usually in the context of really, really heightened distress or like really, really big upset emotions that one can't cope with. And that's it. That's usually has a different flavor than picking or cracking or, you know, kind of doing things to our body when we're stressed. Um, If it's something that continues or your child is bothered by it or is wanting a bit of help, uh, there's a website called the TLC Foundation for Body-Focused Repetitive Behaviors, which has some good information about that. And there's even a book called Overcoming Body-Focused Repetitive Behaviors, a Comprehensive Behavioral Treatment for Hair Pulling and Skin Picking um, by Charles Mensueto and colleagues. Uh, So those are some resources if, uh, if things don't seem to be improving. I guess the other point to make is having some aspects of body-focused repetitive behaviors isn't necessarily a sign of a serious mental health problem or anything like that. Um, so it's not it's not something where, you know, because A is happening, we're really, really worried about B, C, D, E. Um, so it, just in case it's a, it's a parent who's feeling a bit sort of anxious about what it might mean, it's not usually a sign of, of anything particularly serious or, or distressing, I guess I would say. Shifting gears a bit, this next question gets at sibling relationships. And in conversations we have with families who reach out to the Kelty Center, they have often expressed that 
When one family member is struggling with their mental health, it can absolutely impact the family as a whole. And it can be especially hard for siblings to understand or even have compassion for what's going on at home. Um, the question the parent shared is, I'm struggling with how to explain to my younger child that their older sibling has anxiety and depression. My younger child gets frustrated when their sibling doesn't want to play with them or be around the family. I can see some big negative emotions starting between them both, but I want them to stay close to siblings. So how can I talk to my kids about this? Of course, as parents and caregivers, we want our kids to be close to each other. I mean, they're going to be lifelong friends, hopefully. But I, I, it's true that it, things do get harder to navigate when someone in the family has a mental health issue. I, I think the first step in a situation like this is to check in with the older sibling who does have the mental health concerns around what they feel comfortable sharing and not sharing, because there are some privacy issues. And then to think about the younger child and their developmental level and what do we as parents or caregivers want them to know, what can they handle, what's appropriate, because there doesn't have to be full transparency in families. That being said, it is good to have at least a little bit of transparency about when someone's struggling, because sometimes the mysteries we make up in our mind are scarier than reality. And so, you know, the younger sibling might think, oh, my my brother or sister doesn't like me, instead of knowing that it's really because they're struggling. Then when it's time to communicate uh, with the younger sibling, the first step is really to come in from a place of just acknowledging and validating how they might be feeling. So I know that that urge to explain, to have them understand what their sibling is going through, but it's hard to take in information rationally when you're feeling upset. So if you can imagine, the younger sibling is probably feeling maybe a little bit rejected or jealous or displaced or whatever it is. So we want to come in first with that understanding. Like I yeah, it must be tough for you because every time you go to talk to your sister, she seems to be in her room or she doesn't want to play with you anymore. I mean, this happens just as the older sibling enters the teen years, even if there is no mental health issue, right? So these are conversations that we end up having with younger siblings all the time. And then once we've really acknowledged and validated how it might feel for the younger child, and they have the space to talk about that without feeling like it's somehow wrong or bad to have these feelings, then we can launch into more of the explanation of why the older sibling is acting that way. And we also need to look at the older sibling and, and should, are they avoiding the family for some reason? Is there is it normal adolescent development? Is it part of their anxiety that maybe needs a little support to come back into family life? Um, and, and kind of look at that piece too, because we all want closeness on some level as families. And, and probably the older sibling too is is feeling they're missing something out as well. So so as we all know, myself included, as a parent of a four and seven-year-old, parenting can be incredibly challenging at times. Uh, with younger kids, tantrums, meltdowns, and aggression can be common behaviors that parents have to deal with. We had a parent write in and ask, when trying to enforce consequences, my child becomes aggressive. What should I do? especially if my child is not yet diagnosed with a mental health challenge. Any tips on how parents can manage in these moments? I guess the, the first thing I would say is that young kids in particular, but even older kids, express a range of emotions through behaviors. So hitting a caregiver can be a sign of frustration, of sadness, of anxiety, of anger, of all sorts of things. 
And it's also really common for kids to act out when limits are being set because they don't want that limit there in the first place. If they did, you wouldn't have had to set a limit. Um, and so, you know, act, acting out is normal. It's their way of saying, no, I do not want to turn my show off and clean up my toys. So, so the first would be to take stock. Are these outbursts happening in themes or at common times? Do they happen at times of transition, for example, which is a super common time for kids to act out? They're happily doing one thing and it's time to put the shoes on or get in the car or when they're tired or when they're hungry or when they have to go talk to a grown-up and they're nervous about that. Um, and if there's if, if you've identified a situation where it's more common, what we want to do is try to provide a little bit more scaffolding. A, a mantra I have in parenting, I was going to say therapy, but I mean even more broadly parenting in general, is like prevention's easier than intervention. So it's much, much harder to talk a child down when they're at like, 100 level tantrum than it is to kind of notice, oops, they're getting a little bit upset. Let me try to provide a few more warnings or kind of help them transition to this new situation. Step two would be to take a good hard look at, are, there, are they getting anything good out of acting out? So if they throw a tantrum in the grocery store line because they want a chocolate bar and you've said no, and then because it's awkward and embarrassing and you know, there's three people behind you in line, you say, okay, you can have the chocolate bar, then that's an example of getting something good out of the bad behavior or what we call having the behavior being reinforced. So we want to make sure that that's not happening, because that is one of the things that can maintain um, acting out behaviors. But once you've looked at those things, it's important to know that these kinds of behaviors are just a normal part of child development and of raising kids. And they're really the hard part. As humans, our emotions, generally speaking, are really contagious. And that's a good thing. It's good to feel afraid if someone beside you looks afraid. That gives us information. But what it means is that, that when our kids are angry or upset or anxious, we really feel that deeply ourselves. And so taking a chance to have a deep breath, settle yourself a little bit, remind yourself that this isn't going to last forever. It's going to be over this is okay, this is normal, you're not a bad parent. All those kinds of self-regulation skills as a parent are super key because if you're feeling more settled, that actually helps your child to get more settled. And then the last thing would be when they're in tantrum level 100, your only goal is to maintain safety. If they're hitting their sibling, you gently remove them or you have the sibling go farther away. It's not the time to try to talk to them about things. We cannot really take in information when we're in that really activated state. Knowing that we're getting close to our time together ending on the podcast here, I'll just ask uh, one last question that comes from a parent or caregiver from the Gulf Islands. So it says, I have, or I'm having a really hard time dealing with three children who are between the ages of eight and 11 and have different challenges. We managed to identify the main problem is that no one feels anyone else listens to them. So they don't care to listen to anyone. Everyone is angry all the time and everyone ignores each other until yelled at and then conflict begins and escalates. This is a cycle I've been trying to break for ages. We've tried a few programs over the last four years like Ross Green's Collaborative and Proactive Solutions, etc., with small bits of headway. But right now I'm feeling really overwhelmed and my partner is away for stretches of time and so it can be hard. Any recommendations on how to break the cycle or what to do when programs you've tried don't work? 
my heart really goes out to the person asking this question because you can just hear how much she's tried, how hard she's working. And I know she's not alone that so many parents listening right now are feeling this way, that they have just tried everything and, and no therapist, no program, like nothing is, is making a dent. And honestly, sometimes I think I won't say the answer, but the, the, the thing to keep in mind is that sometimes you just have to stop trying for the next thing and ask yourself, what do I need? You know, what do I need as mom, as dad, as grandma, as caregiver? And maybe that's more support. Maybe that's my own therapist. Maybe that's to have a conversation with my co-parent about the fact that I just can't do this alone anymore in the same way. Maybe this is a conversation with work about changing hours. Um, Maybe it is that none of that can change, but... I need to not try to make my kids feel better for a few minutes and just go for a walk or take a bath or watch a show. And I need to do that enough times that I feel less overwhelmed and better uh, in my day. And then I develop the strength again to tackle some of these extremely challenging things because it's hard to find joy right now in the pandemic. And when all your kids are also having a hard time with that, you know, something needs to change a little bit to be able to find, maybe to, to look less at the problems, but start carefully listening for what are the, the solutions that we already know. Like maybe we can play a board game together or we can go for a walk in the forest together or we can watch a funny show together. And those little bits of joy, maybe they grow into bigger bits of joy. And then somehow the climate in the household improves without doing things that are so formal or that take more time and energy. Absolutely. And such a good point. So that's it for our questions from our listeners today. We had so many that came in, but um, these are the ones that we were able to get to. On the podcast, we often end each episode with insights or tips from our guests for our listeners. And as we wrap up season two here today, do you have any final words of wisdom or parenting nuggets that you wanted to quickly share with our listeners? I would say right now, just get back to basics. Do a good enough job. Be kind to yourself and focus on your own well-being. This really, really has been hard. And none of us are going to be at our very best right now. If you are, please phone me and tell me how so that I can learn. But, you know, the, what, what matters fundamentally for kids is that they feel loved. They feel like they matter. And they are able to do a few things that make them feel good. Get outside, play with a friend, you know, have some cuddles. This is a marathon, not a sprint. And I know that's a cliche, but I think we have to tell ourselves as parents, you cannot run a marathon at the same speed as a sprint. So don't try because it's just going to make you feel bad about yourselves. And that's not going to help with anything. So I think everyone, everyone I have talked to in the last year and before that as well, I think is doing such a good job and trying so hard and managing so many things. And I think it's time we take a step back and just praise ourselves for that and let some other stuff go. Such good advice. Dr. Miller? Honestly, nope, there's nothing more to add because that's the whole message is there's nothing more. It's enough. (laughs) It's good enough. 
Fantastic. Thank you. Um, so thank you so much to both of you for joining us here today. Um, such great insight and wisdom that you're able to share with our listeners. So thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much. Thanks. It's our pleasure. Thanks to our listeners for sending in your questions. If you have any other questions about accessing mental health services or supports, feel free to email the Kelty Center at keltycenter at cw.bc.ca and we'd be happy to help. We also encourage you to check out our new interactive tool on our website called Ask Kelty Mental Health, where you can ask and see answers to common questions families have about accessing mental health supports and services for their children. You can find it at keltymentalhealth.ca slash askkelty or A-S-K dash K-E-L-T-Y. We'll also post the link in our show notes for today's episode. This is our last episode for season two and a great one to end on. You can listen to episodes from season one and two at keltymentalhealth.ca slash podcast or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Before we wrap, Michelle, just out of curiosity, what's something that stuck out for you this season? Oh, thanks so much, uh, Bryn. There were so many um, tips and resources that I took away and, and used within my family. So it's there was one thing that stood out for me in our episode that we did on concurrent disorders, where the parent that we had on, Nairi, talked about a phrase or a mantra that they used in their family. And it was, tomorrow is a new day. And that has always stuck with me. And I've actually said that to myself when there's, you know, it's been a tough day within my family or it hasn't gone quite as planned. Tomorrow is a new day. How about you? For me, it was some of the takeaways from the Keeping Tech in Check episode that we did with Dr. Shimmy Kang and her 14-year-old son, Josh. I love the fact that Dr. Kang was also a parent of three on top of being a leading researcher in this area. And Josh came and gave his youth perspective on developing family tech guidelines. And I also remember at that time of the recording, tech use in homes was on the rise for many families because at that time in the pandemic, school had been moving to online for kids and some parents were beginning to work from home. And in our household, I remember feeling overwhelmed with the increased use and reliance on screens. And when Dr. Kang talked about how it's never too late to reset your tech guidelines, and in fact, it's a conversation you should be revisiting often as a family, that was the nudge that I needed. So that weekend, we sat down as a family and created our own family tech plan. And to this day, it's still on the fridge. You know, we've gone back and revisited it at least twice and kind of shifted and changed things. And it's a really helpful tool to help us keep us working towards a more balanced use of tech in our home. We haven't nailed it just yet, but uh, it's, it's a work in progress for sure. So I was really happy to have those takeaways in that episode. Awesome. Well, I look forward to season three where we can delve into um, a whole new season of other topics. Absolutely. Thanks again to our listeners. And we hope the information and resources in this episode will help BC families continue to promote their family's mental health and wellness from where you are to where you want to be.